for our time in the Word this morning. Please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 to 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 to 7. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in your in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Father God, we ask you, as our Bibles are opened, that our minds will be open to receive your word as well. Be our teacher and help us discern your will so that we may worship you through every area of our lives. May we respond to, to scripture properly and to you we look as the object and subject of our worship. We thank you for this time that we have in your son's name. Amen. There are many things in life where we don't need to take too seriously. What type of car to get? Where to eat for lunch? Should I go get, add this to my boba drink? Many things in life that we do, and even decisions that we make, have no lasting consequence. In that sense, that's why it's insignificant. It doesn't matter because in the long run, it's going to perish. And therefore, we don't need to take much thought in it. We don't need to take it so seriously. There are many things in our lives that are trivial and temporal that shouldn't require that much mental strength and even thought. And I think because there's so many of these things in our lives, so many different spheres of, of the trivial and the mundane, that, and even things that are insignificant, that we often neglect the things that really do demand our focus and things that we do need to take seriously. We assume that just because one area is insignificant, then that means every other area is as well. Worshiping God is one of the areas in your life that you must take seriously. We must take our worship of God seriously. It's too common in our culture to want to make the church like the things of the world to make the church look like the world. It's common for churches, even in our day, to try to make the church look common. 
We want our church to be hospitable and welcoming as one of our friends' houses or homes. Uh, we want to be served with a kind of detailed and swiftness as a high-end restaurant. We want our churches to, to move us, to wow us like some major blockbuster movie. We want our church's music to sound fresh and contemporary so that other people can play it in their cars openly without any embarrassment. We want our church to be common. But the church isn't common. The things of God and the things of the world are drastically and radically different. Many churches, out of a desperation to be relevant, to draw a huge crowd and to be accepted by the world, choose to dilute the sacred things, the sacred things, the important things of God, and make it common. Christians are called to be holy because our God is holy. And the church should be holy because of that. To be holy means to be unique. That's why God is described this way. He is unique. He's set apart. He's in his league of his own. He is not common. Worshiping God must always be perceived as something that is of most importance. And it demands our reverence because our God is a God that expects us to give him the highest affection and attention to detail. The book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is the writer, and he built the greatest temple of all time. Until Christ returned, this temple is the, I guess it will be the best that man can ever do. Solomon created this temple, this temple, and it is of magnificent beauty. And perhaps many people all around the world have heard of this Solomon, his wisdom and his, his architectural abilities, and people are flocking to Israel to see this temple. It is no surprise that when people enter into the sea, they see this temple and they just want to know and want to observe and experience what, what, what's inside this temple. Solomon probably have seen these people flock to Israel and to see and, and, and they're and making lines into the temple. And he notices that these people are just mere spectators. They're there just for the amusement of it. They have no spiritual desire to draw close to the Lord. I believe that's why he wrote this section in particular. To warn people that they need to approach God with reverence. Solomon sees all these individuals and he pens this part. He sees the people's, the, he sees them, he sees that these people are, are lackadaisical, that they're half-hearted and they, are, and they have an apathetic attitude towards God. And if Solomon is able to discern this, then how much more can our Lord? Our Lord knows what's really going on in their hearts. God is not always impressed and honored just because you go to him to worship. Because he doesn't, he doesn't care about where you are physically. He wants to know where you are in your own heart. It is clear in the New Testament that it doesn't necessarily matter where you go to worship or where you gather together to worship, but rather he cares about how you worship. He cares about how you worship. There is an old rhythm and blues song called A House is Not a Home. And it's a lovely song. It's a song about a person living in his house by himself and he misses his insignificant one because of a bad breakup. He notices that the house that they built together is not a home. 
that it, that it doesn't have the warmth and the safety and, and the stability and, and all of that. It's because that person, that, that significant person is not there. And that goes the same for the church. What makes a church a church is not where we worship physically or the physical building that we occupy. Rather, it is what happens when people gather together and they worship together in the building. Our corporate worship is not confined to an address. Where we gather is secondary. Relatively speaking, it's insignificant compared to what we do and how we worship when we gather together. God, by God's providence and sovereignty, we are in the situation that we are in today. We haven't gathered in our usual place of worship for months. But we must remember that Jesus and the apostles and all the prophets in the past, they've taught indoors and outdoors. And if it's good enough for them, then whether we meet indoors or outdoors, it's good enough for us as well. It's not about where you worship, but how you worship. Are you taking all the time that we have in terms of gathering and worshiping together seriously? Do you worship him with a reverential heart no matter where you are? The first four chapters of Ecclesiastes speak of all these different general categories of life, whether it's pleasure or work or relationship or hobbies or philosophy, whatever it is. Everything is completely meaningless without God. Now, when we get to this chapter, it's almost like a a shift in tone. Solomon speaks directly to the reader. He speaks directly to them and gives them specific commands on how they are to live their life. And starting here, he speaks about what we need to do in a time of corporate worship. In a culture that does not have or even believe in anything that is sacred, it must not be so for the Christian, because we know as Christians that the church and worshiping together is a sacred time. There are Christians, sadly, that claim to be worshipers of God that do not take worship seriously. So you know, it draws questions to mind. How can I know if I am pleasing to the Lord during the time of worship? How do I know if I'm honoring, giving glory to God when we gather together and worship together? How do I know that what I'm doing is not sin against the Lord? Because you realize that you can still be in the corporate worship of other believers and sin against the Lord if your heart is not in the right place. How do I keep myself from sinning against the Lord in the midst of a corporate worship, in the midst of a corporate gathering? Here's, here's five of them. First, you need to take being in God's present, presence seriously. Take being in God's presence seriously. Look at the first part of verse 1 of chapter 5. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. In the Hebrew, this is weird, and for us is weird. This is actually the last verse of chapter 4, but for us, this is the first chapter of chapter 5, first verse of chapter 5. And this word guard here is an imperative. It's the same word they use in Proverbs 14, verse 3, about how a person needs to guard their mouth, uh, or else they'll get 
punched in the face or they'll get hurt for the things that they say. Solomon tells the listener here to guard their steps before they enter the house of God. Guard your step. Watch out. So remember that at the time when Solomon's here, it was a temple worship. People have died trying to worship the Lord in a way that is not pleasing to him. When they don't take God's word seriously and they enter into the temple, people have died because the Lord struck them dead. And it's easy for us in our modern day church on Sundays to think of Sunday as just something that we do on a Sunday. The word step here can be translated as feet. In the Old Testament, step is to mean is to mean a, a lifestyle, a way of living. So putting it all together, Solomon is saying that you need to watch your lifestyle and your attitude as before you enter into the Lord in corporate worship. Something that, something, well, Old Testament God, he's very vengeful, angry, and short-tempered. The New Testament God is more gracious. Don't ever assume or even presume that just because God hasn't struck you down for your failure to worship him means that God is pleased with your worship. It is only a matter of his grace and mercy that we can enter into the church with a cavalier attitude. Lack of immediate consequence does not mean that God tolerates your actions. Do you come to worship with a right attitude? How do we do that? How can we do that? We have to have this this internal preparation before we worship on Sunday. We need to prepare our hearts before we worship. In this COVID time, it is very easy for some of you to just wake up and then just turn on your devices and then sit in bed with your pajamas on and then that's how you worship. It's very easy to do that. But just because you do that, just because the attendance is up in terms of our YouTube stream or if you're um, listening on the audio version, whatever it is, just because you do these things, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Lord is pleased by it. God doesn't care about your attendance, but where your heart truly is. Make your heart right with God before you enter into the time of worship. How? How do we do this? We need to be mindful about the things we do, even the night before. Even the days, the, the, the leading up to worship, we need to be mindful that it is a privilege to be able to hear God's word, to be able to worship corporately, to be able to serve one another, to be able to sing praises to Him and fellowship with the saints. These are all privileges and means of grace by the Lord. Back in the Old Testament time, remember, there was the temple and there was a veil that separated God and man. That there's only one person that could enter into that. And as the the great high priest, he could only go in there once a year. People couldn't just walk in there if they wanted to. They They couldn't just go into a place where God dwells because they are sinners and they need their sins to be washed away and be holy before they enter into the presence of God. And we need to prepare beforehand when we worship. And for some of you, that means that you need to pray even before we do the pastoral prayer. Others of you need to prepare your heart the night before through prayer and reading of God's Word. Some of you just need to sleep early so that the next day you can be attentive. You can be fully there when you hear God's Word, when you sing praises, when you serve. You can be absolutely 100% there. God is not like our earthly friends that you can just walk into the house and just kick back and relax. You're entering a place of worship. And you and I must take going to Him seriously. You remember there's that veil 
in the temple. That veil inside the temple, this four-inch veil, this will be a symbol of separation. Separation of things that are holy and distinct, and the common, and the things that are in this world. For us, that four-inch veil was torn top to bottom, and it almost became like a welcoming mat, letting those that um, have placed their faith in the Lord and Jesus Christ, that they can enter into the presence of God, that they can go in with a clear conscience. It took the death of the Son of God for us to be able to worship Him the way that we do today. We must remember that at one point in time, we were unworthy to be in God's presence because of our sin. But because of what Christ has done for us, we can come before the presence of God. We can freely go to Him. But that doesn't mean that we have to be cavalier about it. That it doesn't mean we have to be so loose about it. Being with God must be viewed as a privilege and honor. The type of worship that we can enjoy today came with a price. We must treat worship as something that is valuable. Do you take being in God's presence seriously? If you want to honor the Lord on your Sunday worship, you want to honor the Lord in a corporate gathering, the first thing you must do is to take being in His presence seriously. And next, you need to be taking in God's Word seriously. In other words, you need to listen to God. First, you need to gather, you need to guard your heart as you enter into God, and you need to listen to God seriously. Our second point, take listening in to God's word seriously. Take in listening to God's word seriously. Look at the, the middle of verse 1. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Psalm here is actually highlighting the importance of hearing God's word. Notice, draw near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. There's an urgency in listening during our time in the house of God more than actually giving things to the Lord. The centrality of coming together and gathering together to worship is to know God. This is why we come together primarily, is to know God. This is why our church is called San Francisco Bible Church. It's our location, San Francisco Bible. That's the thing that, we, uh, that we're all about. We're all about the book. Our main goal for, all, for you is to know God and to know how to honor God with your life. And we must first know God and then respond to God's word. Listening to God in, in his word is more important than giving to God. Listening to God's word is better than serving in his name. God's word must be preeminence. It must have that preeminence in your life, both in your personal life and in the corporate worship. There are those that, that people want to, that they think that worship is just what you do. You know, whether, it's, whether it's singing or, or, or doing ushering or counseling, we think of all of these different things that utilizes our skill set. And we think that is church. We think church is it's just a place where we can use the thing that God has given us. And I'm not saying those things are not important. Those things are significant, but they are not significant in relative to knowing and hearing God. Some people only view church as something that we do, but God wants you first and foremost to hear Him. God doesn't care about what you have to offer Him, but yet people still think that if they just give or they just serve, that, that the Lord, this gesture itself would be pleasing to the Lord. 
This is a type of wrong thinking, and it's not new in Scripture. Right? This is what Cain did back in Genesis chapter 4. He offered a sacrifice that was not pleasing to the Lord. That doesn't mean that uh, you know, God hates vegetables, but that he didn't take the time to think about how to worship God seriously. That's why God rejected his offering. It was out of his rebellious heart. He did not want to worship God the way that God expects. Saul did this in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. He, he, he overstepped. He did what Samuel was supposed to do. He offered a sacrifice and he wasn't in the position to do so. And God said that he doesn't care about the sacrifices, or rather he cares about someone that fears him with all their heart. And some of you are like this. God does not need anything from you. Rather, he needs you to hear from him. God wants you to listen to him. God wants you to open your ears to him. You recall... In the book of Luke, chapter 10, this is a very familiar story to all, to all of us. The story of Martha and Mary. Luke, chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. Now, as they were traveling along, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to the word, to his word, but Martha was distracted with all her preparation, and she came to him and said, "Lord, do you not care that my sister have left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me." But the Lord answered and said to her, "Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her." Martha was serving and doing everything and she wanted other people to serve and Jesus told him told her that there's actually something better and that's what Mary was doing she told him that the the better thing was to sit at his feet and hear him teach perhaps to some of you Sunday is not primarily your time of hearing God's word and to be fed by God's word but rather you see it's just a time for you to teach to serve the children to serve other people, to give counsel. Again, not saying that these things are not important. But Sunday worship is primarily gathering, is a gathering of the saints to receive instruction from God's word. John chapter 10 verse 27 says, My sheep hears my voice. John chapter 8 verse 47, Whoever is of God hears the word of God. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that, Therefore we must pay much closer closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it and in revelation chapter two uh in chapter two and chapter three the seven churches that jesus writes to each of these churches ends with this phrase those who have here have an ear let them hear during the time of corporate worship god is not so much pleased by what you have to offer him or what you do but he expects you to hear his voice first I wonder if you ever considered listening to him as, a, as part of your worship, hearing his word as an act of worship. Do you see that listening and hearing God's word as essential in the time of worship? We naturally think that worship is something that we do with our hands, but we forget that it's actually what we do with our ears as well. 
We forget that we need to engage God's Word with our minds and be an active and engaging listener of God's Word. Listening to God's Word is not simply a transitional period between one thing to the next. It's not, the, not some sort of holding pattern for you for you to do some other ministry. It's not for you to rest and, and it's not for you to primarily just sit there and rest so that you can go and hang out with your friends afterwards. You must Understand that hearing from God through His Word is central, again, to your private life as well as the corporate worship. A church isn't a church just because people gather together. I mean, non-believers do that. Non-believers can gather together and even read books together. But what makes a Christian church unique is that we hear from the Scriptures what God God's, God has to say. This means that Christians, uh, we get nourished by God's Word and then we serve as a result of that. It's a response to God's word. Perhaps the key reasons that you don't want to, to you don't want to serve or you're constantly struggling with the same type of sin or you have this, this fear um, for evangelism or you have failures to submit to authority and parents or you're not constant in your prayer life or you have no desire to read in God's word or, or lacking any spiritual growth. The reason why you may be going through all that is because you don't hear and listen God's word. You're unable to uphold any spiritual discipline is because you don't take hearing God's word seriously. That lack of desire to be fed is why you have no spiritual energy to do the things that God expects of you. What goes on in your heart and mind when you hear God's word? Are you already thinking about what you're going to do afterwards? Is that what you're really looking forward to on a Sunday? What you do after church? Perhaps you're just thinking, oh, well, I can't wait till church is over so I can talk to a special someone, so I can talk about you know, my, what my week is like. Or perhaps maybe what you're thinking is, I can't wait till this preacher just stop talking so I can go and have lunch. Of course that doesn't happen, right? If we don't listen to God, you cannot expect to honor the Lord with your life. Listen to the Lord. If you don't make approaching God, if you don't take approaching God seriously or listening to God's word seriously, then you are not honoring the Lord in your time of worship. Not only that, but your thoughts of God must be serious as well. Which gets to our third point. Take your thoughts before God seriously. Verse 2 to 3. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in the heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dreams come through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Verse 2, this is, is referring to people praying to God without any true thoughts. Uh, if you have war, it's like if someone is just listening to scripture and then they just randomly say something that is not actually true or even responsive to what God's word have to say. You know, scripture has warnings against the way that people talk to one another. If you read the book of Proverbs, it tells you to be mindful of your speech and the way that you talk to each other. And James as well tells us to tame our tongue. And that's just in a, in, in a horizontal relationship. How much more it is, is it when we talk to our Heavenly Father? Yeah, I'm not saying that you need to pray in some old English style with these and thous and all of that, or that your prayers can't be spontaneous. I'm just saying that when you 
pray to the Lord, whether it's something small and mundane to like your meals and everything, any opportunity you have to pray, you must pray with reverence. And if you don't, then you need to repent of it. How you speak to someone reveals what you think about them. About them. There is a way in which I speak to my wife that is different than the way I speak to everyone else. Now, it would be strange if I talk to some of you that way, the way that I talk to my wife. It would, it would, it would, make, the, it would make my relationship with my wife seem insignificant and not special if I talk to everyone else the way that I talk to my wife. Imagine if I went up to one of the elders, looked at him and said, Hey babe, how you doing? That would seem really strange and bizarre. I will be slapped by that elder and then my wife will slap me afterwards. There's certain vocabulary and tone that's going to be different from the way I talk to an elder in a church and the way I talk to my wife. And and it actually should be for the better. The way I talk to my wife should be more endearing and filled with love. It should be better than the way I talk to the elders. Not to say that I'm disrespectful in my tone to the elders. I'm just saying that, excuse me, I'm just saying that the way that I talk to my wife needs to be better. And we shouldn't speak to God in our prayers the way that we speak to anyone else on earth. It should be unique. There should be a special, t- uh, a unique tone that we give to the Lord because Jesus Christ and the Lord is in a category of his own. If I talk to God the way that I talk to my wife, then there's something wrong there. It shows that there's a diminishing value of who God is. If I talk to God the way that I talk to my wife or anyone else, it, div- it diminishes the value of God. See, the way that you communicate with someone reveals how you see them. Be mindful in how you speak to the Lord. For it will show you what is in your heart. How we view God will dictate and how we speak to God. There must be deeper thoughts in the way that we pray. Why? It says it answers it in verse, at the end of verse two. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. We must never forget that we are mere creatures and God is the creator. God is God. Do you believe that, that this is, that there is a unique way that we pray to God? Yes, God is our loving Father and we need to approach Him like these, like these needy children. But that doesn't mean that we should be carefree about our prayers. Verse three, this isn't referring to when it talks about dreams, for the dreams comes much it comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. This isn't referring to dreams when you sleep. How do I know that? Because you can't control your dreams. Dreams just happen to you when you fall asleep. And later on, and also in verse 7, talks about how for in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness. This word dream simply means aspirations and, des- and goals and desires in life. It's exactly... It was almost similar to the way that we use in English, right? When we ask them, hey, what are your dreams? We're not actually asking them what they dreamt about the night before, unless you're like a psychiatrist or something. But generally, when we say, hey, what are, you, what are your dreams for the future? Or you're actually talking about what they want to do in life, their aspirations, their goals, their mission in life, things that they want to accomplish. Dreams come from a lot of mental exercises through, uh, takes a lot of mental exercise of thought and time, and you and I dwell on our dreams and hope that, and even think about these hopes and dreams to the smallest detail. We know every little thing we think, uh, we look at from every angle, we just dwell on our dreams. And then we pray to God, offering all these details as if God cannot just throw these dreams away or these plans away or that He doesn't have a better plan for us. 
What is Solomon saying here? He's saying that some of our prayers are very mechanical. If it's as if speaking to God is just something that we do. He's saying, no, you need to be very mindful in the way that you speak to God. Why? Again, it's, the, it's because God is in heaven and we are on earth. He is God. We are his subjects. We exist because God wants us to exist. We owe him everything. Without him, we are nothing. Genuine worship requires humility. So let our words be weighty and few. When you're worshiping together and when you're praying to the Lord, is this something just different than the way that you talk to everyone else? Because, again, that reveals what's in your heart. Solomon sees that in the way people pray publicly and has these weird languages that seem right, but their hearts are not there. God looks at your heart, and how you pray reveals what's in your heart. If we don't approach God or listen to God or offer our prayers and our thoughts to God seriously, we aren't honoring the Lord in our worship. Not only that, but point four, we must take our commitments before God seriously. We must take our commitments or our vows before the Lord seriously. Verse 4 to 6. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you owe, pay, or pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on, on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? Now, today is July 3rd, I believe. Yes. So this, is, so this might be terrifying for some of you that made a whole bunch of New Year's resolutions a few days ago. Because you're thinking, what does this mean that we cannot back out from these things? And the answer is yes. It's better that you don't make any at all. Solomon addresses the issues with vows or promises that you try to make before the Lord. Solomon is thinking about what happens when someone makes a vow to God impulsively. It is a foolish thing to do so. If you are moved to do something, just do it. Don't, you don't need to make a vow, some sort of public vow or some declaration saying that if God does this in my life, I will do this or I will do this the rest of my life. These things are vows that are foolish because you don't know what the outcome will be. You don't think you, enough or you don't think in terms of long term if you're able to fulfill it. Vows in scripture seem to come in two different types of categories. The first category is like, God, if, if you do this, then I will do that. And the other category is, is like a type of commitment, like, Lord, I vow to commit my life to you. Uh, we see that in, in the first category, God, you do this and I'll do that. That's like Jephthah's vow, right? He's like, if you help me win this war, I'll, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. Um, that's the first category. And we know in Judges, he sacri- end up sacrificing his daughter. In the second character, those that are commitments, these are people like uh, Hannah uh, to his son Samuel. If you give me, uh, well, I guess this is more in the first category as well. Like, if you give me a son, I'll he I'll give him uh, I'll give I'll give my son to the temple. Or like John the Baptist and others that are like that has this Nazarite type vow that I want to do something, a devotion to the Lord, uh, specifically and uniquely to be used by him. 
And the Psalms and Scripture speaks of both of these. There are some that's like, if God does this, I will devote more of my life or more of my time to Him in different ways. And others, are like, it's just a commitment. I want to commit my life to Him. These are both types of vows in the Scriptures. In our days, we tend to find, we want to find loopholes and ways to wiggle out of the things that we make. These are things that people will, these vows that people will make and seemingly even justifiable reasons to not continue with these commitments. You would probably find loopholes or ways in which we don't have to fulfill these things. Again, both of these type of vows, they, in, in, on the surface, it can be good things, but just don't make a vow if you don't know if you keep it. So let's put it in context. Let's say that first vow, the type of like, if God does this, then I will do that. It's like if someone says, if God will give me a job, I will give to the church X amount of dollars every single month. And the Lord actually gives you a job. Now, you act, are you going to fulfill that vow by giving a certain amount to the church? Or if you say, if I, if Lord, if you give me a spouse, I will evangelize every weekend. And the Lord actually blesses you with a spouse. Are you going to fulfill that promise to do evangelism every weekend? If you don't think you're able to keep that vow, then don't make the vow. That's the first category. The second category are those that you commit. These are uh, vows that you just have to commit. It's like, so, uh, things like marriage. Right? And when we marry people, we, they, there's a marriage commitment that may, they make to one another and to the Lord, that they will do their best and all they can to honor the Lord in the context of their marriage. Or when we in our church, when we do the parent dedications, when the parents um, dedicate their child, we're not saying the kid is going to have to uh, make a vow like to, to submit to mommy and daddy. No, we're saying the, the parents first and foremost and the church as a whole, we come together and we promise that we will do our best to raise the child in the fear of the Lord. Now, what if you're single? Well, I know that for some of you, you've joined our membership. And, and I have I've often asked in the membership interviews, what do you plan to do for our church? And a lot of you will say this. We'll, you'll say, I want to serve in this way. And then uh, when we ask you, at, in, you know, corporately, are you going to use your gifts to glorify the Lord? You say, yes, that's a vow. Now, what happens when there is a need in the church and you say, well, that's not for me? You know, or, or if you need, if we're, you know, if there's some sort of fellowship or, or gathering, you choose not to be in the assembling of the saints. That's denying a vow. Or if you, or the most common one I hear is when people come to me and say, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. And then they fail after they reach the book of Numbers or Leviticus. These are vows that you make. And whatever it may be, it could be good or it could be bad. Which, whatever amount, vow that you make to the Lord, you need to keep these vows. Verse 6 tells us that Solomon seems to be, again, he's speaking of vows and people's tongues can cause them to fall into great and many sins. He's speaking to some, and this is speaking to like these people that make a vow and then they tell the worship leader, right? It's like, again, if you come up to me and you say, I'm going to do this from now on, I'm going to give up this certain lifestyle, I'm going to give up this certain hobby, I'm going to do more of this, and can you keep me accountable? And then I come up to you next week and ask, hey, how's that going? You say, oh, my bad. I haven't, I haven't done it. You know, I, I've watched that TV show or uh, I didn't do my Bible reading or whatever it may be. If you know it's just to be safe, it's just better that you don't make a vow. Rather, you should be moved. Yes, you should be moved by the Lord to do the things that I've mentioned, like you know, dis- disciplining yourself and all that. Th- these things are good. But you don't have to make a vow because you never know what happens. You never know you can truly commit to it. Deuteronomy chapter 23, 
Verse 21 to 23 reads this. When you make a vow to the Lord, your God, you should not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you. The Lord, your God, will surely require it of, of you. However, you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Keep your vows and promises, even if it hurts you. We get that in Psalms chapter 15, verse 4. says here and whose eyes a reprobate is despised but who honors those who fear the lord he swears to his own hurt and does not change and the psalm here speaks of the same thing when you make a vow you will do whatever it takes to keep it even if it means hurting yourself not in terms of like inflicting pain but like let's say you choose to give yeah it's going to hurt your wallet a little bit if you say, I want to do more Bible reading, yeah, it's going to hurt your time in other areas. That's what it means, that it's, it's going to take discipline for you to fulfill and keep that vow. People who are truly worshippers of, of God will take, these, will take their own words seriously. This is a person that tries to bargain with God, and when God expects, and, God, and let's say God gives them what they want, they fail to fulfill their end of the bargain. And God hates that. God sees that as sin. And making a vow and, un- and unable to fulfill it is a sin. So do you make or have you made commitments to the Lord? And if you do, are you going to fulfill it? Are you going to do your best to honor it? No matter how trivial it may seem, or, or, or maybe to yourself, how trivial it may be to yourself or to other people, you need to fulfill it because... It is a sin if you don't follow through with it. And we look at all these four points about approaching the Lord and hearing God and our thoughts and our vows. How do, we, how do we keep all of these things? How do we honor the Lord? Solomon ends by explaining that you just need to fear God. Our last point, take fearing God seriously. Verse 7, For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. This conclusion is similar to every message I've preached through Ecclesiastes, that just fear the Lord. And again, this, is, this sounds familiar to verse 3, the idea that being that your hopes and aspirations and things that you say, all of that is empty. Rather, what is most important is that you need to focus on fearing God. The dreams and aspirations that you have will not have any long-lasting longevity. Many words in describing the dreams and plans that you make are empty and will have no value. Rather, fear God. The more you know God, the more you will fear Him. And it will be evident by your pursuit of who God is. Fearing the Lord is a starting point of genuine worship. Right, this is how the Proverbs begin. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the more we know about the Lord, the more we will worship Him with a genuine heart. Some of, you, some of you, you don't worship with a heart for God because your heart is still a heart of stone. Some of you may have gotten through the membership and you even got baptized here at our church and you've never genuinely have a true love for Jesus Christ. 
You think that your words will cover, and and you think that your words and your deeds will cover the deadness that's inside your heart. But when you stand before the Lord and He says, "Depart from me, for I never knew you," you will begin to bargain and try to reason with God by all your self righteousness in your life. Friend, if that is you, if this is you today, if you're listening to this, please repent. Humble yourself and truly turn to Christ. Better to be found a fraud now in this life than to stand before the Lord and be found a fraud for all of eternity. For those of you who have a fake relationship, that you don't have no fear of the Lord, it doesn't matter what you give to the Lord, it doesn't matter what you do in the church, it doesn't matter what type of commitments you make that you're even able to accomplish. Because if you don't fear the Lord, you don't have an awe for God, you are a fake worshiper. And God sees right through it. For those of you who have truly loved and feared the Lord, I trust that you understand that fear in the Lord encompasses every meaning of that word. It is an awe for God and a terror for who He is. You're astonished by who He is because of all that is revealed in Scripture, all the, his, his power and majesty. And I mean, the, the crown jewel of that is Jesus Christ. You, it should be exciting for you to think about what... Uh, it should excite you when you think about Christ and what God has done in the past and what they're doing to us, through us in the present time and what He's preparing for us in the future. Your heart must adore God for all that He has done and all that He is. At the same time, you know that, God, the, the, that the God that you worship must not be trifled with. God, the God that you and I worship demands total allegiance because there is no other God except for Him. He has the ability to do everything. He has a knowledge. He knows everything. He's everywhere. He is not bounded by time and He is the most powerful entity in all of existence. These two types of fear, whether it's a, a, a adoration or awe or terror, they must be in balance. You must have both of them. Keep that fear, both the awe and the terror. Ask yourself when you come to worship, what goes on in my own heart? Not in terms of what you do in front of other people or the location that you're in, but rather how do you worship the Lord in the secrets of your own heart? Is your life marked by genuine love for Him which shows how you treat the Lord on any and every Sunday? Do you take into account the seriousness and honor it is to be able to stand before the Lord and worship together as we gather as a congregation. While we are listening to the message of God, are you taking in God's word, knowing that every Lord's day or any time that we gather together, that the Lord has sovereignly placed this message in your life for you to know. It's not for other people. No, it's for you specifically. Are you mindful of the thoughts that you have about God? Is it, does it elevate God to where He belongs? It ensures that even your, your thoughts are pleasing to Him because those thoughts are before the Lord as well. Are you mindful of the commitments that you make before the Lord that requires you to fulfill them? Otherwise, it is a grave sin before the Lord. Lastly, do you fear the Lord knowing that He made you and call all of his creatures to worship him in the way that he deserves. How you answer these questions will reveal to you whether or not you're honoring to the Lord in your worship time, or if you're, you have a false worship and actually sinning against the Lord 
during the time of worship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that is clear and convicting. Help fill our hearts and mind with your spirit. Whatever we learn of your character and your expectations of us, may, we, may you work in our hearts so that we may live lives that are aligned with your word. Help us this week and every time as we come to worship you that we do it out of a genuine fear and reverence for you. We thank you in your son's name. Amen.